thank, thank you very much again for this welcome on this lovely day. I don't actually recall the occasion Joel has in mind. Um, perhaps Perkins. it's... Oh, it's Perkins. Okay, yes. No, well, I do now, yes. I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten you were there. Yeah, yeah. I know that you Methodists are very keen on getting your liturgy right. I noticed that the hymn is uh, not designed for this time of the year, and so I propose uh, that next time you sing it at this time of the year, you change the second verse, robed in the leafy garb of fall, and then you're going to have to alter the last line to something like, who makes the shrunken soul walk tall, in order to rhyme. <laughs> I hope you think about the words of the hymns you sing um, because actually even the Easter hymns often let you down um, as soon as they start Easter and Ascension hymns as soon as they start talking about Jesus going to be way beyond the blue or anything like that I just get very twitchy I just don't think that cosmology is what the New Testament was talking about um, and likewise about hymns about resurrection. This is all by way of preamble, just to show you that I mean what Joel said he meant I meant. Um, that uh, when we, when we um, sing about our future after death, look at the words in your hymns, and if they're not biblical, set some nice poet in your congregation to write some better ones. And some of them aren't. There's a remarkable evening hymn in my tradition, Son of my soul, thou saviour dear, it is not night if thou be near. It's a wonderful evening hymn, gorgeous tune it's got as well. And the last verse just throws it all away. It says, come near and bless us when we wake, ere through the world our way we take, till in the ocean of thy love we lose ourselves in heaven above. That's Buddhism, not Christianity. In the gospel... You find yourself. We long not to be unclothed, to be a naked drop in God's ocean somewhere, to be more fully clothed. God intends that in the resurrection you should be more truly who you are, not less. Reject that dualism wherever you find it and teach your people so. Now, okay, so much by preamble. It's just because I started thinking about hymns, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I come to the large question then, how then did Christianity begin and why did it take the shape it did? And my argument in this lecture has the same outline shape of the well-known line of thought expounded by Professor Charles Mole, M-O-U-L-E, in his book The Phenomenon of the New Testament, published over 30 years ago, often ignored and never, to my knowledge, satisfactorily answered. But the content I'm putting into the argument is significantly different, I think, from Moles, and I think it can perform the task he set himself even better. I say that with some trepidation, as he's one of my heroes and, and, and lifetime sort of senior friends. Let me sharpen up the question a little. Most recent writers on this subject seem to me to miss what is arguably the most striking and important thing about the early Christians' view of Jesus' resurrection, namely the eschatological claim that it launched, which remained firmly within Jewish eschatology, sometimes loosely called apocalyptic, and yet transcended it. All the early Christians actually known to us, as opposed to those sometimes arbitrarily invented by ingenious scholars, explained their existence and purpose by telling the Jewish story of the kingdom of God in a way that had now been decisively reshaped around Jesus himself. 
Now, people sometimes try to show that what they said was just a natural development from the stuff that Jesus was saying. It just went on. Jesus taught stuff and did stuff, and then he died, and they went on teaching stuff and doing stuff, pretty much the same stuff. The evidence for that is actually pretty poor. It's a strikingly odd new phenomenon, and by examining the oddity of what it was they did and said, we can come close to an analysis of what they thought had just happened. I want to take this in three stages. Kingdom of God, Messiah, resurrection. Early Christianity began as many things. It also began as a spirit movement. It began as a a sharing everything movement. But I want to look at these three because it seems to me they're very significant in this way. Christianity began as a kingdom of God movement. Christianity began as a messianic movement. Christianity began as a resurrection movement. And in each case, this is a puzzle for the historian. And in each case, my argument will fall into three steps. So you've got three subdivisions within three. The first in each case, I shall examine the way in which Christianity began as a movement of that type. Second, we'll look back at Judaism and say what movements like that looked like and what they hoped for. And third, I shall show that the striking differences between the relevant movements in Judaism and the apparently equivalent movements in Christianity are such as to call for a particular sort of explanation. And the early Christians provided one, and only one, namely the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So first, Christianity began as a kingdom of God movement, but kingdom of God in Judaism had certain definite meanings. Third, since these hadn't come to pass, why did they say they had? Let's look at each of those. First, Christianity thought of itself as a kingdom of God movement. Already by the time of Paul, the phrase kingdom of God was so well known within Christianity that Paul can refer to it, like in Acts they use the phrase, the way, as a way of summarizing what we're all about. They didn't use the word Christianity the way we did, we do. Kingdom of God, for instance, in Romans 14, Paul can just say the kingdom of God is not about food and drink, it's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that at that point, he is summarizing what he said nine chapters previously at the beginning of Romans 5, if we are justified by faith, we have peace with God, da-da-da-dum, and we rejoice in our hope through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. So when he's summarizing kingdom of God, he actually chooses phrases which come from the very, very heart of his exposition of justification and salvation. This is absolutely dead central, and it is a present reality. I gave a paper on this subject in Durham University in England some months ago, and uh, Professor Jimmy Dunn said to me the first question right off. He said, but surely the early Christians had the kingdom of God simply in the future, like Jesus did. And I said, well, yes, it is still in the future, but it is certainly in the present, and this is one of the best bits of evidence for that. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we find that there is both a future and a present evidence, uh, 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 emphasis in the kingdom. The Christians believed that in some significant sense the kingdom was already present. Now, of course, some writers have tried to argue, these are writers within the Jesus Seminar and my friend and sparring partner Dom Crossan among them, that the phrase kingdom of God meant for Jesus and the earliest Christians a new personal or spiritual or communal experience rather than a Jewish-style movement designed to establish God's rule in the world. But all the actual evidence that we've got as opposed to little fragments of a hypothetical early Q or early Thomas or whatever, indicate to the contrary. 
If Jesus' movement was a counter-temple movement, early Christianity was a counter-empire movement. When Paul said Jesus is Lord, he was quite clear that that meant that Caesar wasn't. That's, I think, crystal clear in Philippians. This is neither a cynic-style, counter-cultural, aphoristic teaching, nor yet Gnostic escapism. It is Jewish-style kingdom of God theology, and it's got Jesus in the middle of it. And this theology was born within and sustained by not a group of Gnostic-style conventicles, pursuing their own private spirituality into ever higher and higher layers of disembodied heavenly existence. It was a Jewish-style New Covenant community. They ordered their lives, in the case of ex-pagans, quite drastically around the new symbolic universe in which the Jewish hope that there would be no king but God had come to birth in Jesus. They engaged in praxis which said, there's a new way of being human a way which answered to the claims of this kingdom. Christianity was indeed, in the Jewish sense, a kingdom of God movement. That is the first step of the first stage of this afternoon's argument. The second step is to consider what kingdom of God had meant in Judaism. That's a large topic, and like everything else today, I can only summarize it. Within Judaism, the kingdom of God meant, without a shadow of doubt, the end of Israel's exile, the overthrow of pagan empire, the exaltation of Israel, the return of Yahweh to Zion to judge and to save and to establish justice for the world. Those are the motifs that emerge from that great kingdom prophecy, Isaiah 40 to 55 and from numerous psalms and other parts of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Lord is king and has put on glorious apparel. Your God, O Zion, shall be king forevermore. It's a cosmic vision of the covenant God becoming king of all the earth. And as Josephus makes clear, in Jesus' day, kingdom of God was a slogan of the revolutionaries. Judas the Galilean, he says, was a sophistes, a scribe, who led his rebellion, the revolt of A.D. 6, not just because they didn't want the new Roman rule and its attendant taxes. There have been lots of countries, it seems to me, in history that have not wanted to be ruled from the other side of the sea and taxed without being represented. Um, <laughs> Judas led his rebellion because they believed there should be no king but God. So for the Second Temple Jew, the coming of the kingdom was not about a private existentialist or spiritual experience, but about public events, particularly the liberation of Israel, and ultimately the coming of God's justice and freedom for the whole cosmos. So if you'd said to a first century Jew, the kingdom of God is here, and then they say, what do you mean? Look out of the window. It blindingly obviously isn't here. <laughs> and if you'd said, oh, no, no, I mean, I've had this wonderful new spiritual experience. This new sense of forgiveness. I've had an exciting reordering of my private religious interiority. I mean, they wouldn't have put it like that, but you know what I mean. Um, they might well have said they were delighted for you, but why did you refer to that as the coming of the kingdom of God? That's not what the words mean. Now, the third step in this argument is to put these two together. The early Christians said the kingdom of God was here, but that's what kingdom of God meant but the kingdom of God had not come in the way that first century Jews had been imagining. Israel wasn't liberated. The temple wasn't rebuilt. People weren't keeping the Torah any more faithfully than they had been. And looking wider, evil and injustice and pain and death were still on the rampage. So why did the early Christians say the kingdom of God had come? And it won't do to say, as the Jesus Seminar and others have, 
Oh, they changed the meaning of the phrase radically so that it now simply referred to a vertical kingdom about uh, a private experience rather than this eschatological forward movement to an event that was going to happen. I hope you know that the best basic answer to the arguments of the Jesus Seminar and Funk and the rest who've produced this new portrait of Jesus is that they have produced a gospel which is not good news but good advice. It's all the difference in the world between good... Something that happens, you see, is good news. And if nothing happens, all you've got is good advice, and actually you might question whether it's good. You see, people have said, oh, well, no, they took the apocalyptic meaning current in their world, and they demythologized it, they de-Judaized it, they spiritualized it, they Hellenized it, but that's simply not true to early Christian kingdom theology. In the same chapter as the first written exposition of the resurrection, namely 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explains this new Christian perspective. The kingdom is coming in a two-stage process so that the Jewish hope for God to be all in all, for justice and peace and love to embrace the cosmos, is now coming in a twofold way. It will be realized fully in the future because it's been decisively inaugurated in Jesus. The early Christians, in fact, not only used the phrase kingdom of God so clearly that when the early Gnostics wanted to produce their own religion, they borrowed the phrase, even though they didn't mean anything like what it had meant originally. But the early Christians reordered their symbolic world around it. They acted as if the Jewish-style kingdom was present. And they did indeed speak of a new state of affairs at the level of the internal or spiritual attitudes and loves of the heart but for that they used not the language of the kingdom but the language of the indwelling of the spirit the renewing of the heart and stuff like that so the historical question is posed what on earth and i mean on earth would have caused them to act and speak and think like that why did they not continue the sort of kingdom revolution they'd imagined Jesus was going to lead. You see, people have often and rightly argued as an apologia for the resurrection that you can't explain how those muddled, frightened, runaway disciples suddenly became the excited, enthused, energized, and courageous disciples of the beginning of Acts. That's true. But that would be so whether they lived in first century Palestine, 20th century America, or anywhere else you could run that argument. Let's get first century specific and sharpen this stuff up a whole lot more. How do you explain the fact that early Christianity was neither a nationalist Jewish movement nor a private existential experience movement? How do you explain the fact that it asserted from within the Jewish worldview that the eschaton had arrived even though it didn't look like people thought it would? The early Christians said to a man and particularly to a woman that Jesus had been bodily raised from the dead. That's why the kingdom had come. That's why the new age had dawned. They hadn't expected it, but now that that had happened, the only thing they could say was that the kingdom had come. When the early Christians spoke of Jesus' resurrection, they were not talking about his body lying moldering in the grave while his soul had gone on to bliss or paradise or whatever. That's what wisdom said about the martyrs, and nobody thereafter would conclude that the kingdom had come. It would only come when God did the next thing, which was to raise them from the dead. Now that brings me to the second stage in my argument. If Christianity began as a resurrection movement, it also began as a messianic movement. 
Let me summarize the case again as the first step in this second stage of this afternoon's argument. To begin with, the earliest Christian sources we have speak of Jesus as Messiah. According to Acts, it was central to the early proclamation, God has made Jesus Lord and Christ, Kyrios Kai Christos. Now, you might say, well, that's just Lucan theology. That might be much later. Okay, what about Paul? He's the earliest writing we've got. Now, I argued in my book, The Climax of the Covenant, that Jesus' messiahship remained central and explicit for Paul, and that in passage after passage where he says, Christos, Christ, Messiah, he means Messiah. It is not just a proper name. And one of the best examples is Romans 9, 5, where Paul is listing the privileges of Israel and finally says of their race is the Messiah. It's clear that he means Messiah, but actually once you understand Messiahship, it goes further than that. Though, now, I had a brief conversation with Christa Stendhal, who is emeritus in Harvard now, just two nights ago. Um, yeah, that's right, Tuesday night. It's funny, when you're on the road, you forget which day it is. Um, it is Thursday today, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's why I'm, I guess that's why I'm here. Um, and and he, said, he said, of course, um, isn't it interesting that in Paul, none of the uses of Christos seem to mean Messiah. And I said, well, sorry, I just don't see it like that. But you see, and this is my point, even if Stendhal and others are right, even if Christos is just a proper name in Paul with a few distant messianic memories attached to it, then you can't evade the conclusion that if the ex-Pharisee Paul within 30 years of Jesus' death was referring to Jesus as Christos, especially if he was doing it without giving a thought to the meaning Messiah, that only goes to show how firmly within the very, very earliest Jewish Christian traditions Jesus' Messiahship had taken hold. In other words, it only tightens the screw of the argument even tighter. How do we explain that? Why did they say that he was the Messiah? Now, Bultzman and others used to say, casually, oh, because of the resurrection. This was a way of saying Jesus never claimed to be Messiah during his lifetime. People didn't even think that Jesus was Messiah during his lifetime. It was purely the resurrection that generated that. Niels Dahl, a great Norwegian scholar who used to teach at Yale, exploded that one a generation ago, arguing that the resurrection by itself could never have given rise to the idea that Jesus was Messiah. If someone else, supposing one of the two brigands crucified alongside Jesus, had been raised from the dead, people would have said the world is a very odd place. They wouldn't have said he was the Messiah or the Son of God or the Son of Man or anything. Dahl postulated, therefore, that we must seek the reason in Jesus' messianic execution, crucified with the words King of the Jews above his head. And in Jesus and the Victory of God, I've argued that this in turn forces us to look further back. He wouldn't have got that stuck up above his head unless he'd been doing things and saying cryptic things which pointed in that direction. Please note, I'm sure you know, the word Messiah or Christ in Second Temple Judaism carries no connotations of divinity. It means Messiah, and Messiah is a human figure. Divinity is important, but it's a different question. Again, even if you disagree with Dahl or with myself and try to insist that Jesus only came to be thought of as Messiah at his resurrection, that, if anything, would tighten the screw of the argument even tighter because, second step in second stage of this afternoon's argument, a first-century Jew faced with the crucifixion of a would-be Messiah or even of a prophet who had led a significant following 
would not conclude that this person was the Messiah and that the kingdom had come. He or she would conclude that he wasn't and that it hadn't. There were several variations on Jewish messianic belief in this period. None of them envisaged a Messiah who would be executed by the pagans. On the contrary, where Jewish expectations of a Messiah did exist, they routinely possessed a dual focus. You can trace this line going right back to David and on to Bar Kokhba a century after Jesus, and including the Maccabees and the house of Herod along with it. The king has two tasks, to defeat the pagans and to rebuild the temple or reconstitute or cleanse the temple. It's there right the way through, a thousand-year royal tradition. And the two would go together. As long as the pagans remained undefeated, it was presumably because the temple wasn't proper yet. Yahweh had not really returned. It wasn't quite ready. So Yahweh was no longer defending Zion or whatever. So if a Messiah was killed by the pagans, especially if he hadn't rebuilt the temple or liberated Israel, that was the surest sign that he was another in the long line of failed messiahs. Now, it's surely clear what follows from this. If the Messiah you were following was killed by the pagans, you were faced with a choice. You could give up the revolution, the dream of liberation. Some went that route. Notably, of course, the rabbinic movement as a whole after AD 135. One of the rabbis of roughly that generation says, he who takes upon himself the yoke of Torah is free from the yoke of the kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting? In other words, go and study and practice Torah privately, and you don't need to do that revolution stuff. Much safer. And the whole slew of them went that route after the failure of the Bar Kokhba revolt in 135 AD. Or you could find yourself a new messiah, preferably from the same family as the late lamented one. Some went that route. But there's a continuing movement from Judas the Galilean in AD 6, who is killed by the Romans, to his sons or grandsons in the 50s, Jacob and Simon, good revolutionary names, James and Simon, where have you heard those before? And the Maccabean names and also Jesus' disciples' names. And they are crucified by the procurator Tiberius Alexander in the 50s. And then another relative, Menachem, is one of the would-be messiahs during the Jewish war of 66 to 70. And then another relative, Eliezer, after Menachem is killed by a rival group, another leader, Eliezer, takes them off to Masada, where they all commit mass suicide, supposedly, according to Josephus. Let's be clear. That's how they did it. They got the man we thought was our leader, our messiah. Let's find another one. Here's his son. Here's his nephew. He's a holy man. He's a man of prayer. He's a scribe. He studied the scriptures. He is our new king. That's how it worked. And if after the death of one of those great messiahs, or take another one, one of the most famous, Simon Bargiora, who was taken back to Rome by Titus in AD 70 and was killed as the climax of Titus's triumph in Rome. It's kind of a ceremonial execution to show that we won and these guys lost. If after that death you had claimed that Simon really was the Messiah, oh, I know they killed him, but I think he really was the Messiah, the best you could expect would be an arm round the shoulders and, you know, poor fellow who's been standing too long in the sun. You know, obviously he's not the Messiah. And if by way of explanation you said, well, you'd had a sense that Simon was still with you, still supporting and leading you, and you wanted to follow the way that he'd gone. The kindest response you might expect 
would be, as we saw this morning, that his angel or spirit was still communicating you. Not that he'd been raised from the dead, and certainly not that he was the Messiah. So far as we know, all the followers of those first century, century messianic movements were fanatically committed to the cause. They, if anybody, might be expected to suffer from this blessed 20th century disease called cognitive dissonance when their expectations failed to materialize. But in no other case right across the century before Jesus and the century after him do we hear of any Jewish group saying that their executed leader had been raised from the dead and he really was the Messiah after all. So the third step in the second stage of my argument, granted that Jesus of Nazareth certainly was crucified as a rebel king, it is extremely strange that the early Christians not only insisted that he was actually the Messiah, but they reordered their worldview, their praxis, their stories and their symbols and their theology around this messianic belief so that they were known from quite early on, at least by their enemies, as Christianoi, Messiah people. So much of early Christian theology, when you actually smoke it out and understand the Jewish categories, is explicitly messianic. Act 17, the Areopagus speech, people make a great song and dance about it because it's Paul apparently compromising by saying, here is the altar to the unknown God and I'm going to tell you about it and I'll quote your poets and we'll do this and that. Paul is also being very confrontative there when he says that the Almighty doesn't live in houses made with hands. I mean, it's a very much a both-and speech. But then the climax is God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world by a man he's a Appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all people by raising him from the dead. That is Jewish messianic theology. When the king of Israel arrives, he'll be the judge of the world. Psalm 2, Isaiah 11, you name it, it's built in. You see, the early Christians had the normal options available to them. They could have simply gone back to their fishing, jolly glad to have got away from Jerusalem with their lives. They could have, and John 21, maybe that's what they were doing. Let's just go back to business. They could have switched to a different tack. They could have given up messianism, like the post-135 rabbis, and gone in for some kind of private religion instead, whether of intensified Torah observance or private gnosis or something else. Maybe some branches of Christianity tried to do that. The Gnostics, the Ebionites, whatever. But the first generation certainly didn't do that anything less like a private religion than going around the pagan world saying that Jesus was the Kyrios Cosmo, the Lord of the world, it would be hard to imagine. Equally and most interestingly, they could have found themselves a new Messiah from among Jesus' blood relatives. People don't normally consider this, and I think we should. We know from various sources that Jesus' relatives were still important and well-known in the early church. Two of Jesus' great-nephews, did you know Jesus had great-nephews? Two of Jesus' great-nephews were hauled up before the emperor Domitian in the 90s on a charge of being part of a royal family, part of the king's kin. They got off, interestingly, by showing Domitian their hands. They were farm laborers. They said, you never saw royalty with hands like these they got off. Most significantly though, one of Jesus' closest relatives, his brother James, who had not even been part of the movement during Jesus' lifetime, 
became the anchor man in Jerusalem while Peter and Paul went charging off around the world. Richard Borkham, in his two or three recent books on James and, and related topics, has argued very strongly that James was widely regarded in the early church as the person at the center, geographically and theologically. Yet, yet, this is the vital clue, like Sherlock Holmes's dog that didn't bark in the night. You know, why didn't the dog bark in the night? Nobody in early Christianity ever dreamed of saying that James was the Messiah. Nothing would have been more natural. We followed his brother. He was a wonderful teacher. He did great miracles. He was a holy man. We really thought God was with him. And then the Romans got him, you know, like they did so many. But here's his brother. He's a wonderful man of prayer. He's a Hasid. The, the Hasidim in Jerusalem respect him because he's so holy and he's always in prayer. And he's a great teacher. He's got something of his brother about him. He must be the Messiah. No, nobody ever said that. Josephus, talking about James's killing by the chief priests in the years just before the war, says that James was the brother of the so-called Messiah. Polygomenos Christos. It's nonsense to Josephus, but that's how James was known. Nobody thought he was the Messiah. We must ask then again, why did Christianity even begin, let alone continue as a messianic movement, when its Messiah so obviously not only didn't do what a Messiah was supposed to do, but suffered a fate that should have proved conclusively he wasn't the Messiah? Why did this group of first century Jews not only continue to believe that he was the Messiah despite his execution, but actively announce him as such in the pagan as well as the Jewish world? Please note, a lot of controversy about this. People used to say Messiahship was a Jewish idea. Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles. Therefore, of course, Paul translates the gospel out of Jewish categories and makes Christos the word for a new cult figure, such as will go down well in the Hellenistic world. Don't believe it for a moment. It's just not the way it happened. What Paul believed the, Jewish, the Gentile world needed was the Jewish message that there is one God and that this God's anointed king is exalted as Lord of the world. It is the Jewish message that is precisely universal. The early Christians' answer to the question consistently through the evidence we possess was, of course, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So please note, by itself, Jesus' teaching and actions hinting at messiahship would not have been enough to make people go on saying he was the Messiah after his death. By itself, the resurrection of somebody in the middle of history would have been a very odd thing, but would not itself have caused people to say he's the Messiah. Neither of those would be sufficient in and of itself to make people say, that's it, he is the Messiah. Put them together, and you get a QED. He was doing cryptic Messiah things. He was saying cryptic Messiah things. Then we thought the crucifixion had disproved it, but the resurrection came back with a bang. And as Paul says in Romans 1, 3, and 4, he was demonstrated to be the Son of God, which is a royal title at that point, by the resurrection of the dead. Thirdly, Christianity began as a resurrection movement. And resurrection was not, as I said in Ben Witherington's class at 11 o'clock this morning, 
It was not bolted on to Christianity at the edge. You see, often when you get people talking about resurrection, it's they believe this, they believe that, they believe the other, oh yes, and then they believe in the resurrection, or whatever, or the life everlasting. Like in the creed, it sort of comes at the end if you're not careful. Well, I mean, it comes in the end whether you're careful or not, but if you're, if you're, not, if you're not careful, that's the only place it'll come in your thinking. The point about resurrection in early Christianity is that it is woven through and through and through. Incidentally, so much North American Christianity gets hung up when people ring you up from chat shows and newspaper interviews about two things, the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection. In the New Testament, those are not on all fours with each other. I believe in both, but the virgin birth could drop off the front of Matthew and Luke and leave the rest of the New Testament unchanged. Try doing that with the resurrection and you hardly have anything left. The resurrection just goes through and through and through. In Paul in particular this is so, and in Romans particularly it is so, but also in a book like 2 Corinthians, where it's all about suffering and comfort, suffering and comfort, and the rhythm, the dynamic, the to and fro, the living at the place of pain and finding that God meets you and heals you and comforts you there. Where has Paul learned that stuff from? Well, partly from Jewish tradition, yes, but my goodness, it's been sharpened up and focused. And the only thing that could possibly have done that is his belief in what God has done for Jesus. Or take a passage like Galatians 2. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. What is this? It's both a personal, spiritual experience and something which characterizes all Christians and therefore constitutes them as members of the same body and hence belonging at the same table, but also it's something which could only have been said once resurrection had been sharpened up so that it didn't just mean that I as an individual will, if all goes well, get my body back again, but that God designs something to happen which will mean that it is still me, but it's a different me. There is a newness but there's also a continuity. Where has that come from? It's a totally Jewish belief, and yet no Jew had ever said that before. There's masses more I could say about that, but I've got an eye on the clock. The, the, the points I want to make are these. First, the resurrection as something that has already happened to Jesus and as something that characterizes both the present experience and the future hope of Christians is a central strand within all early Christianity. You can't remove it without doing damage to the entire structure. But second, this thinking about the resurrection has a remarkable precision and consistency. Unlike the Jewish beliefs about bodily resurrection, which are important but by no means very specific, from the beginning, Christian statements about the resurrection are astonishingly free of vague and generalized speculation. It's crisp and clear. Resurrection means going through death and out the other side into the new life that God had planned for those in Christ, which is in fact the new life God had planned and promised for Israel, which is in fact the new life God longs for for the cosmos. So the first step of the third stage of my argument, I hope you're keeping awake enough to hold this framework in your mind, and I don't have any pretty pictures like Ben did this morning. Um, Christianity began as a resurrection movement, but... As we saw this morning, 
Think about those Jewish expectations of the resurrection. In Second Temple Judaism, resurrection functioned within a controlling narrative about the exile and restoration, about the suffering and vindication of the martyrs. Resurrection began life as a metaphor for the return from exile, the renewal of the covenant, the cleansing of Israel from her sins. It was variously referred to, and it took its place within, as we saw, a wide range of speculation about the future of humans in general and Israel in particular after their bodily death. Resurrection was not a generic word for life after death. It was one specific view of that life, namely that it would involve re-embodiment, and it was a metaphor for the whole restoration of Israel. It became a symbol for the coming of the new age and itself taken literally, one central element in the package. When Yahweh restored the fortunes of Israel, of course, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the martyrs, the prophets, all God's people would be re-embodied. And where Second Temple Jews believed in resurrection, that belief therefore had to do, on the one hand, with re-embodiment of former, formerly dead human beings, and on the other hand, with the inauguration of the new age, the new covenant. Resurrection meant that the dead would be alive again with new or renewed bodies and that the age to come had been inaugurated. That presumably is why when Jesus in Mark 9 said something about tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead, they scratched their heads and wondered what on earth he was talking about. One person being raised in the middle of history with the rest of us still alive to tell the tale doesn't make sense. So if again, you see how the arguments run in parallel, if again you'd said to a first century Jew at any time in this period, the resurrection has occurred, you would have received the puzzled response that it obviously hadn't. I haven't seen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walking around. And in any case, the restoration that Ezekiel was speaking of hasn't happened yet. We haven't been restored as a nation. And if by way of explanation you'd said that you didn't mean that, you meant rather that you had a wonderful new sense of divine healing and forgiveness? Or that you believed that the former leader of your movement was now alive in the presence of God in heaven, following his shameful torture and death? Or that you even had a sense of the worshipping, in the worshipping life of your community, of the presence of Jesus somehow? Your interlocutor might have said, that's a very interesting belief, I'm glad you've come to that, that's great, now let's talk about that. But he or she would still have been puzzled as to why you would use the phrase the resurrection of the dead to describe any of that stuff. That's not what the words meant. So the third step in the third stage of the argument, we made it. As we have stressed before, obviously the new age had not dawned in the way that first century Jews imagined nor had the resurrection of all God's people taken place. I know there is that very odd passage at the end of Matthew 27. I challenged Ben's class this morning. If anyone has a good explanation of what precisely was going on when the bodies of the saints who slept came out of the tombs at the end of Matthew 27 and went around the holy city and appeared to many, and in particular, if there's anyone here who can tell me what they did next, I would love to know. I'm quite serious. But, be that as it may, the very earliest church declared roundly not only that Jesus was raised from the dead, but Acts 4, the resurrection of the dead had occurred. They were announcing in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And I don't think that that means, guess what, resurrection has just happened in one case. I think it means that the resurrection, that for which we have longed, has happened in this focused, unique, climactic, one-off moment. They behaved, in other words, likewise, as though the new age had already arrived, 
ordering their characteristic praxis and stories and symbolic universe and theology around this new fixed point. That was the inner logic of the Gentile movement, the Gentile mission. The whole Jewish movement that led to that was a movement that believed that when God did for Israel what God was going to do for Israel, then the Gentiles would come in. The Gentile mission only makes sense because they believed that God had fulfilled his promises to Israel. They didn't behave as though they had a new sort of religious experience. They didn't behave as if their former leader was, as the followers of the Maccabean martyrs would no doubt have said of their heroes, alive and well in the presence of God, whether as an angel or spirit. The only explanation of their behavior, their belief, their stories, their symbols, is that they really believed that Jesus had been re-embodied, raised bodily from the dead. We must therefore, as historians, inquire whether we have any better alternative to offer or whether, in fact, the early church was right. We must postulate, as historians, something that will account for this group of first-century Jews, including a well-educated Pharisee like Paul, coming so swiftly and so strongly to the conclusion that against their expectations of all the righteous being raised to life at the inauguration of God's new age, one person had been raised to life in the middle of the present age, thereby inaugurating the new age in quite a different way. And we must postulate something that would transform the wide-ranging Jewish speculations about the resurrection which were current at the time into something as sharp and clear and specific and definite as we find in early Christianity. Now, very briefly in conclusion, what are the options that are on the table? You know these, perhaps, you can study them, but let me just flag them up, and this will set the scene for what I'm going to do tomorrow morning. Most of the accounts of the beginning of Christianity offered within the world of New Testament scholarship in the last half century have been variations on the theme of Rudolf Bultmann, which was basically that Easter language does not describe an event which took place involving Jesus' body, but describes the rise of faith in the early church. If we are to think in first century Jewish terms, it is impossible to conceive what sort of religious or spiritual experience someone could have which would make them say that the kingdom of God had arrived when it obviously hadn't, that a crucified leader was the Messiah when he obviously wasn't, or that the resurrection occurred last week or last month when it obviously didn't. We may comment that even if the disciples had had a very vivid sense, maybe a God-given vivid sense, of Jesus' cause being secure with Israel's God, that his life and proclamation had been on the right lines and that they should follow it a bit further. Or even if they'd somehow come to the view that his death had functioned as a lightning conductor so that the wrath of God had somehow been exhausted and had escaped them. I don't know how they would have come to that conclusion. But even if they did give his death some sort of atoning significance, they would still not have said he'd been raised from the dead. They would have written a new version of 2 Maccabees 7, which embodies most of what I just said. They might well have suggested that Jesus had predicted his own resurrection, and they would say, well, yes, of course, he will be raised, and so will we, and it'll be great. They wouldn't say it had happened yet. Once we think in resolutely Second Temple Jewish terms, instead of projecting post-Enlightenment concepts of faith and religious experience back onto the first century, Bultmann's suggestion and all similar ones just falls to the ground. Similarly with the great Dutch Dominican Edward Skillebeek's, 
Skillebakes filled out of Bultmann's suggestion with a more precise one. He said the disciples were so guilty, they'd all run away and left Jesus, so they were consumed with guilt. And then somehow three days later, whether or not they went to the tomb, they had a sense of forgiveness. And Skillebakes says that they did go to the tomb, but when they went there, their minds were so filled with light that it didn't matter whether there was a body there or not. And that then became the start of the characteristically Christian experience of knowing the forgiveness of God and knowing the presence of the risen Jesus and that these were more or less the same thing. Now that may be how many Christians today experience the forgiveness of God, the presence of Jesus. Wonderful. It doesn't work as first century history. As I've said already, if you said to a first century Jew, I've had a wonderful experience of forgiveness and the love and grace of God, they'd have said, great. You know, Psalm 51 really works, doesn't it? Isaiah is is, is a fantastic book. We've got literature that talks about that, and I'm glad it's worked for you. They wouldn't have said that the crucified leader had been raised from the dead. I spoke earlier about Gerd Ludemann and his theory that what happened was that Peter was so grieved after Jesus' death that he had one of those post-death visitations, uh, a grief-induced fantasy of Jesus in the room with him or somewhere talking to him. Ludemann said on a television program when he and I were debating this that he actually came to that view because he had had an experience like that after his own father had died, which he'd found very comforting and meaningful. And as I said this morning from Acts chapter 12, first century Jews knew about experiences like that and they had language to talk about it. It would be an angelic or a spirit visitation. It would not mean that the person had been raised from the dead. It would be very natural for for first century Jews, especially if they belonged to a kingdom of God movement, to say of a leader who had paid the ultimate penalty that his soul was in the hands of God. He was alive with God, whatever. If Jesus' followers had had a sense, as Mark Borg and others want to say, that he was still alive, but in a non-physical sense, that's what they should have said. They didn't. And finally, we have no reason to suppose that after the crucifixion of a would-be Messiah, anyone would suppose he had been exalted to a place of honor like that. People have often said, oh, well, they believed he'd been exalted to a place of world rulership, and therefore they said he'd been raised from the dead. Again, doesn't work that way, but it will work the other way around. Now, these are only a few of the theories, a fraction of what's out there. But I hope I've said enough to show that any theory that wants to say that what the early Christians meant by speaking of the resurrection was that Jesus' body was still in the tomb while his spirit was still present with them. And there are thousands of people out there, and some of them are teachers within the church, who say precisely that. That theory has a formidable task ahead of it, not simply in terms of theology, though goodness knows it's bad enough there, but in terms of first century history. What we find, rather, is the universal early Christian claim that Jesus had gone, as it were, through death and out the other side, that he was not just in some intermediate state, some dismembered existence, but that his body had been transformed in a way for which they, his followers, had been quite unprepared, but with which they had had to come to terms. And I shall try to show in the third lecture tomorrow morning that this is substantially what both Paul in First Corinthians and the resurrection narratives in the canonical Gospels are also saying. Thank you.